Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the time of prayer we've had to start the day with as a church. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this chapter in the Song of Solomon and show us what you would want us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, starting at verse 16. We left off in the first part of chapter 2. The groom is standing outside inviting the, the bride to come out, and she ignores him. <laughs> Uh, kind of like we do so often, we ignore God's invitation to come join him. And so now we're going to see her response now as she starts to realize what she's done. Verse 16, My beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. Until the break of day and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be you like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. By the night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. I will arise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. The watchmen that go about the city found me and to whom I said, saw you him whom my soul loves. And it was but a little while, little that I passed from them that I found him that my soul loved. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. All right, so we start here with the bride realizing, and remember in the first part he was standing at the, at the garden looking into the window. She saw him through the lattice and described his beauty and everything. And now she decides it's time to get up out of the room and go find him. <laughs> and he's no longer waiting for her out there. And that happens to us a lot when God is saying, come, 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 and then we have to go find him. Uh, and it says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And I love this idea. The union that we have with God is so special. He considers us his, and we get to consider him ours. That's a very deep relationship that we have with him and how often do we not follow through on that relationship to really love him the way we should? You know, and one of the things that hit me this morning as we were praying for revival is, even with us that were so faithful to the church, sometimes the revival has to start with us. You know, to remind us that we're not even close to where we should be with him, even when we're close to him. And this is something that is very special. No matter how close we are with God, we can be closer. No matter how much we love his word, we can love, him, his, love it more. No matter, you know, there's such an infinite depth to God that we'll never be able to fully comprehend that depth in any area of our life. And we need to be able to draw closer to him and closer to him and keep drawing closer to him. We can never think that somehow I've arrived you know, I, I'm there, God, you know, I, I love you as much as I can possibly love you. And God says, oh, you don't even have a clue yet. And he'll show us another depth. He'll show us a deeper relationship with him. And this is very important for us to understand. We are one with God, and it'll take us our lifetime and all of eternity to even know what that means. You know, one of the things I look forward to eternity is, you know, a gazillion years from now when we've been with God, we're still only just beginning to get to know who he is and, what he, and, and the depth of his love and the depth of who he is. 
And I'm talking about numbers we can't even comprehend, you know, and it's so far into the future, and we still barely know him. And we know him so much better than we used to know him. And that's the one thing I'm finding. The longer and longer I follow God, the more I realize I barely know him. The barely, I barely know the God's word. I barely know anything about what he wants. I barely know how to follow him. And he said, I want to give you more. I want to drag more. I want you to get to know me better. And so we need to be able to follow this. And it says, at the break of day, when the shadows were fleeing away, turn, my love, and be you like a row, a young heart upon the mountains of Bethor. It says, at the morning, at the morning she decided she was going to go find him. And he was no longer waiting in the garden for her. And, you know, it says, you know, it kind of, it's kind of this interesting thing. We've seen this description before, the roe or the young heart. The roe or might be gazelle is what they think it is, you know, a very beautiful, graceful animal. And that's what she keeps calling the groom. You know, you're just this much beauty and this much grace or as the young heart, the, the young stag and the prime of his, prime of his existence. Um, you know, very, even, even for us, you know, people usually, when they see the, the deer with the full, full rack of antlers on it and everything, they look and say, wow, that is a beautiful creature. And that's what she's referring to him as, the great beauty, the strength. Okay, the gazelle with that grace and beauty, the, the young stag in its prime that has its good looks. And, you know, so she's kind of have this interesting opinion of him. <laughs> you know, he, he is definitely, in the bride's eyes, the stud. <laughs> You know, somebody she desires and wants. And yet she wouldn't get out of the bed to go see him. <laughs> Just a, a couple of verses before. And it says, on the mountains of Bethor, we don't know where those are. <laughs> They're just referenced. We do not know where those mountains are. Um, and then she goes, by the night on my bed, in verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, I sought him whom my soul loves. And I sought him, but I found him not. And this idea of seeking is to secure. She wanted to find and hold on to him. And he wasn't there. He wasn't, he wasn't out there. And, you know, it, him whom my soul loves. And the soul is the inner being of our emotions. All right? We have, our bodies are, our, we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. Our bodies are what we see. Our soul is who we really are in, as far as our fleshly terms. It is our emotions, our attitudes, our thoughts. It is basically the part that continues on. And then our spirit is what God awakens when he comes in. It's the spiritual side, the side that desires to seek God. And the flesh and the spirit will have battles all the time. The soul is where we make our real decisions of who we're going to follow. And, we're, and she says, my soul desires him. And the question we have is, does our soul desire God? When we know him, that's what it should be. Our soul desires God. Our soul wants him. We wants to be in the word. He wants to be with people. And we want to keep this in mind as far as we go. We're, we're to love God with our heart, our soul, our body, and our strength. Everything about us is supposed to love God. And God understands these three parts, and he says all these parts are supposed to love him. And this picture here is, my soul loves you. My body wouldn't let me get out of bed at the time, but my soul loves you. And how many times does, do we have that, where we have this desire to serve God, and all of a sudden, you know, the body just doesn't want to cooperate. 
That's why we need to be quickened in following him because the soul can control the body and the spirit can control the body if we allow that to happen. But it is so easy just to go, you know, God, I am just so tired. I, I got up early this morning. I went to work. I worked all day. And now I'm just too tired to do whatever. Go to church, go read my Bible, pray, whatever it might be. We need to put those things under control and let God quicken. Because our body never wants to do what's spiritual. Our body never wants to do what's right. Because it is, it is fleshly. It is full of the sin nature and just doesn't want to. Our soul is contaminated by the sin nature and doesn't want to do what it's supposed to. Our spirit, when we, when we get saved, God quickens our spirit and makes it alive. Up until that time, up until the time we're saved, our spirit is dead. It doesn't exist because it, we are sinners and it, we, we're actually born dead as far as God's concerned because we're sinners. We have spirit, we have life, we have existence, we have animation, but we're, we're born dead spiritually. And we were created to have that spiritual life with God. And when we get saved, he goes, okay, here's your spirit. Now we have a spirit that's in opposition to the soul and this flesh and causes us all kinds of grief sometimes. When, this is when we get into Paul saying, I do what I don't want to do, I don't do what I, what I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, what, what shall be, become of me? He says, my spirit wants to serve God, but my flesh doesn't want to. Now he had disciplined, now Paul's a great example, he had disciplined his flesh with rules. But rules are not following God. We can obey all the rules, that God, most of the rules that God gives us and still not be following him because we're just whipping chair, taming our flesh to obey rules. And we can, we can force ourselves to be obedient. We can force ourselves to keep, keep God's word. But that's not the same thing as being in a relationship with him and saying, I just love you. And that relationship, when he lives in us, changes who we are and we end up obeying the rules without trying because he's changing us. And that's when we know it's real. All right, God, you know, oh, I don't do what I used to do. I used to do this, now I'm not doing it. Why? Well, because God has changed me from the inside out, not because I have forced myself into being obedient. When you find yourself wanting to do wrong, but making the right choices, that's not from the relationship. It's just God leading you to be obedient. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. It's good to be obedient because you're going to stay out of a lot of trouble. There's less consequences. But true spiritual walk with God is a lot different. You just find yourself saying, oh, I'm becoming more like God. I'm going to be, and, I'm, and I find myself being in obedience to his rules because his rules are who he is. And we've talked about this many times. God didn't just randomly pick a bunch of rules. Because if he randomly picked rules, he could have picked the opposite rules and said, okay, just be as bad as you have. That's what I want you, you know, what we, what we consider bad and that, that's okay because he just, but he goes, no, all my rules are based in who I am. God cannot lie, so therefore lying is wrong. God does not worship idols because he is the only thing that's worshipable. So we are not to worship anything other than God. So everything is based in who he is. And the closer I draw to him, the more obedient I will be to his rules because I'm going to want to be like him. And it's the same thing. If you want to have a relationship, the strong relationship with people, you draw, if both people are drawing close to God, God they're both going to draw close together. And 
This is what she's finding out. She rose up. She goes, I can't find him. He's no longer outside the window waiting for me. He's not pursuing. And there is an adage in, about love is that if you love something, let it go. You know, and if it comes back, it was yours. And if it doesn't, it never was. This is kind of what, she, what she's finding out. Uh, Jesus, just let her go. <laughs> Jesus will let us go too. Uh, you know, he is not going to make us follow him. He is God. He could make us follow him, but he will not do that because that's not the relationship he wants. If he wanted that, he could have just programmed us as a bunch of artificial intelligences that would only follow the rules that he gave us, and it wouldn't have hurt him at all. He wouldn't have had to die on the cross. He wouldn't have had to buy us back. And, but there's also no relationship in that. You know, you're never going to have a relationship with something that's forced to do something. And uh, that's what he says. So she gets up and she says in verse 2, I will rise now and go about the city streets and the broad ways to seek him whom my soul loves. And I sought him, but I found him not. So she gets up, she wanders the streets. And the broad ways are the plazas, the parks of the street. So she's going everywhere. And it doesn't say how long she was searching for him, but she went out looking for him. And you know, have you ever been in a place where it seems like God is distant? It usually is true that if we don't respond to the call that he gives us first and he goes off to do what he wants, there's oftentimes that distance where sometimes we take a while to find him because, number one, we've got to get ourselves back on track. And he's also asking us to follow First uh, John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and to cleanse us. So we look at this and he says, God when he separates from us because we're not being obedient, he wants us to confess. Say that we've sinned, repent from our sins, and then draw close to him. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to send us to hell because, he, because we didn't follow, follow through. He just says, you're not in relationship. And if you're one of his children and you're not in relationship, it's a big deal. You know it. You know it. If you've ever experienced a relationship with God and you're not in relationship with him, you know that something's missing. When you're there, you don't know what's missing because you're out of relationship and, you're, and your flesh is raining, but you know that something's missing. And he's asking you to repent. Confess your sins and repent. And repent simply means to turn away from what you're doing wrong and follow after him. And then he says, okay, thank you. And he brings, draws us into him. She's seeking him all over the place. And so oftentimes we do this same thing and then in verse 3, the watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, saw you him whom my soul loves. Now this is kind of an interesting thing because I actually looked up the word watchmen in my concordance and found out that in most cases, it's talking about those who keep care over another person. Otherwise, pastors and ministers. Okay, so she found the people who could point him out to her. This is one of the things that's important. This is why we go to church. Not because you have to go to church to be a Christian. We go to church so that a pastor or a teacher or other teachers, whoever's in that church teaching, and other Christians can help point God to, our way to God. Because when we're on our own, it is very easy to drift away from God and not even recognize that we have drifted away. And we've used this example before, and I don't know how many people have ever played in the ocean. I used to love going to the ocean and playing in the ocean. 
The currents, if you're not paying attention, will take you a quarter mile, half mile down the beach while you're just playing in the water. And I've gotten out a couple of times and going, walk straight out thinking that my mom and dad were on the towels ahead of me or that my towel would be there and realize that my towel is a half a mile up the beach. You know, and when I start walking back up the beach to where, where it's at. In our Christian walk, it is really easy to drift away from God without people helping keep us online. And that's why it's important. Church is important. In Hebrews, we're told, forsake not the assembling of yourselves, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We need each other to be held accountable, to be kept in the right direction, to, so that at least maybe one or two of the people are holding, holding position, and we draw to them, and then when they drift away, maybe we're holding position, and they're drawn back to God. We have teachers who help us understand things that we don't understand. And it's really wonderful because when we're new in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit teaching us. And the Holy Spirit will teach us, but there are limits of what the Holy Spirit can teach us if we're not in his word and, and not being taught. We take what we're being taught, we add it to what the Holy Spirit's teaching us, and it goes in exponential format. Yes, can I learn by myself with the Holy Spirit if I'm really devoted and, and, and paying attention? Yes, I can. I can. But uh, in mathematical terms, it would be a, a, a straight line of progression or an exponential, exponential. And exponential is where you have this curve that goes skyrocketing at a certain point. It doesn't go straight. It may start out real slow, but all of a sudden it goes really high. That's the advantage of having a teacher. You know, and the teacher's goal, if they're a good teacher, is I want you to start where I'm at and grow beyond me. You know, my goal is to watch my kids take, take what I have taught them over the years and see them go far beyond anything that I could even have imagined teaching them or learning. And then let them teach my grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. You know, but that's my goal. I want to see people exceed what I know. If I see people learning and expounding upon things that I've taught and learning and adding things and the Holy Spirit adding on that stuff and they're growing... That's the greatest thing that I can ever understand. And here the watchmen are that type of people. You go, where is he? Where is he? And they're going, we know, we know where he is. And how often is it that somebody is looking for God and they just happen to come across a Christian that points them to God and exhibits grace? She's at this place. She wants to, she wants to find him. And whether she knew him before or not is irrelevant. I mean, because we even do the same thing. Because some, if we get lost far enough, we know how to find him. We know how to go forward with him. But still, we need that point sometimes. Somebody just to step in and say, you know, have you, why aren't you following God the way you used to? Why aren't you as hungry for God as you used to be? When I walked away from God when, during my years of being a workaholic, it was one of my sons that actually asked one day, can we go to church tomorrow? And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess so. We haven't been to church in a long time. And we started going back to church, and, we've been back to, and I've been back to church ever since. Amen. Just a little, little question. You know, the child shall lead them, we're told so often in times. And oftentimes it is the children that kind of point out, yeah, I miss what we used to do, or, or why aren't we doing this anymore, or whatever question it might be. And we need to be humble enough to be able to even take that kind of information because sometimes they're the ones that put, bring, up, bring back things. And the Christian comes back and says, oh, yeah, I needed that little, that little push, that little reminder. 
You know, and my son's reminder wasn't that big a, big a reminder. It was just, you know, Dad, can we go to church tomorrow? He came to me a Saturday, can we go to church? And it was, I had no reason not to go to church. And I had just gotten out of the habit. And it's so easy for these things to happen. You know, it's so easy to stop reading your Bible every day. It's so easy to stop praying every day. It's so easy to get, stop going to church every day or hanging out with Christians. It's a very easy thing because the flesh doesn't like it in the first place. So it's fighting against us. And we need each other. She needed these people to show this is the way. <laughs> Go, you know, there, there he is, and it says as soon as she, but for a little while, just a very short diminishing time, she passed from them. She found the one her soul loved. She found the groom. And it's a wonderful thing when we find Jesus and say, God, I want to make you, I'm sorry I walked away from you. I'm sorry I didn't respond to you. Let's, let's draw together. And, and she held him. And this literally means she is grabbed hold of him and will not let go. Yeah, this is, this is a security that she wanted. Yeah, I, I lost you for a few minutes. I am not losing you again. For us parents, it's the time when we lose our kid in the supermarket one or two rows over and we're panicked for that moment and all of a sudden we find that kid and it's like, I'm so glad to have you back and we grab hold of them. And we will hold them and we'll definitely hold their hand for a while. <laughs> They're not getting lost. And I remember my daughter did that one time. She got lost over and she screamed when she realized that we were gone and she was only one aisle over. But you know, it's a scary thing when you, when you have that and you find something that you want you hold it. We should be that way with God. God, I've got, I've got hold of you, and I am not letting go. Now, the sad thing is we're human beings, and eventually we let go, and we'll walk beside him for a while, and then after a while we start getting a little distance. Well, you know, God, i just got to do some of my own things. <laughs> and eventually we end up kind of drifting away from him if we're not careful. And at this point, she is holding him. She says, I'm not letting go. You're here. I should have gotten up in the middle of the night to, to hold you, but, I'm, but you're here now. And it says, she took him into her mother's house, into the, cha into the chamber that, it, that her mother conceived her. Now, this seems very strange to us, but it is not an uncommon thing. It was part of the ceremonies actually back then is that you would go into the husband and wives usually had separate chambers, and the nomadic tribes actually had separate tents. Uh, the women were in one place, the man was in the other. The man then would invite his wife into his chamber for relationships, and then she would go back to her chamber and live. And sometimes it, sometimes it was taken to the extreme of you didn't even have meals together all that often back in those days. And so she's taken her to her mother's house into that chamber, and that was getting mom's approval. You know, we always think about needing dad's approval, but they wanted mom's approval. The mothers had the... the primary responsibility of the kids in those days, as they do today. Now, the husbands in the scriptures were taught that they were to train up their children in the way they were to go. This, the husband was directly responsible for training his children in spiritual re relationships and everything. The mother had the, the child rearing responsibilities. And the sad thing is, is, in our day and age, men are taken out of the homes into the workplaces and having less and less to do with their children, 
Back in those days, the man would take his sons out and they would mend the post posts with them and they would plow the fields together and they'd feed the animals together and he'd talk to them about what it meant to, to live and be, be able to do his work and he was able to teach them about God. Part of the sad thing about our industrialized lifestyle is the men are being taken away from their families. And it's not a good thing. You know, yes, we make more money. Yes, we have a lot more stuff, but our families are suffering because of that attitude. And, you know, so she's bringing them, getting the approval. It's time. Time for you to meet mom. I want you to know mom and get her approval on this whole thing. And uh, so she's going out. And then it starts with this uh, charge that we've heard a couple of times. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my, my love. The idea, the bride telling the daughters of Jerusalem, you know, and this is, the daughters of Jerusalem are the people, just general people, all right? We have the, the, the groom, which is Jesus. We have the bride, which is the church. And then we have the world. And she's telling the world, don't bother the groom. Now the groom wants the world to be part of the church. But by the same token, the church and the, and the groom are totally separate. All right. Now, we don't know who all belongs to the bride until we get to heaven and the rapture is taking place and, and the millennial kingdom is done and the bride is chosen. All right. Once the bride is chosen, it will be just that way. Nothing gets into the midst of that relationship. Just as in a true marriage, a husband and wife is not going to let anybody or anything get in the way of that relationship between the husband and wife. Doesn't mean they don't pay attention to family, they don't pay attention to work, they don't pay attention to other things, but they're going, there's a time just for us. And, and it's not, okay, I'm gonna bring all my friends into this relationship, we're gonna have all these people close together and have hundreds of people in this relationship. No, that's not a marriage. Here she's saying, I charge you, don't, you know, you're, you're not to stir up anything, you're not to stir, you're not to cause problems, you're not to arouse. You're not to bring in any problems. And this is something that we want to be very careful of. We've talked about this. God is called a jealous God. And jealousy has a good side and a bad side to it. The bad side is when you take jealousy and try to control a person. That is not good jealousy at all because that's saying I don't trust them. But true jealousy says I'm not going to let anything separate us. And that can easily switch to the, to the bad side, but you know, if you see somebody, you know, for a woman, they see another woman trying to make a play on their, on their husband, they're gonna get, no, this isn't gonna happen. Or a man seeing you know, some other man trying to make a play on his wife, he's gonna say, no, this isn't gonna happen. You're not gonna split our relationship up, and that's a good jealousy. Now that jealousy can go so far as saying, oh no, you can't go hang out with the girls at the, you know, go out to dinner, because you might just find a man somewhere. No, that's way too far going the other direction. But good jealousy, and this is where she's at. You know, stay, you know, hey, you daughters, look, stay away. <laughs> stay away. This is, this is our night. This is, this is our, our relationship. You're not going to arouse it. You're not going to tempt in, in, in this relationship. Verse 6. Who is it that comes out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchants? Behold, his bed, which is Solomon's, threescore... Valiant men are about it of the valiant of Israel. They are, they all, 
hold swords, be an expert in war. Every man shall has his sword upon his thigh because of the fear of in the night. King Solomon made himself a chariot of wood of, of Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom of gold, and covered it with purple. The midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. O you, go forth, you, O you daughters of Zion, and behold, King Solomon with a crown, wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousal and in the day of the gladness of his heart. All right. So it says, who is this that comes out of the wilderness? Like a pillar of smoke, perfumed with myrrh, frankincense, and with the powders of the merchants. The idea of the wilderness. The wilderness is our walk with God without victory. All right. When we see this word, you know, out of the wilderness. The children of Israel lived in Egypt. And we've talked about this. Egypt represents the world, lost, lostness. The children of Israel left Egypt being taken by God. They were in a relationship with God and they walked 40 years in the wilderness without victory. And it was because they chose to. Remember, just a very short time after they'd left Egypt, they came to the promised land and they said, God says, now it's time for you to go in. And they go, no, we're not going in because the people are too strong and they're going to overtake us. And God says, okay, fine. You can walk around the wilderness for 40 years while everybody in this generation dies. The wilderness is a relationship with God, him taking care of you. Because remember, God took care of them in the wilderness. He fed them every morning with manna. He gave them quail at night. He gave them water. And you've got to think, with three and a half million people, that's a lot of food and a lot of water every day that God provided for them. He took care of their needs, but they were never blessed. How many Christians walk around having their needs met but never being blessed because they were never willing to cross into the promised land. And here he says, the, the groom, the, they're speaking here, and he says, the bride is still speaking, and who is this that's coming out of the wilderness, coming out of the world? You know, like pillars of smoke. You know, they were led, the children of Israel were led by the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. The, the prayers of the saints are described as the smoke ascending to, to heaven. God talks often about things climbing to heaven as smoke. And this is the idea of the frankincense and the myrrh, the, the ointments of the perfumes. And he says, and all the powders or the aromic powder, aromic, aromaic. No, that's not aromatic. <laughs> I'll get the right word out yet. Aromatic smelling stuff. He says, this is what the groom is like sweet smell to her the sweet smell of serving him and, and worshiping him and following him it says he is out there he guides out of the wilderness and he wants to guide us into the promised land the land flowing with milk and honey with abundance of possessions and activities and so many christians spend their entire time with god in the wilderness I don't know if they're afraid of the blessings or don't desire or don't believe or don't have enough faith, but most of us spend most of our time just having needs met, just doing the bare minimum of whatever it is that we'll to, to have what we want. But God is saying, I want you to come into the promised land. I have so many more blessings for you. But he doesn't want us to take those blessings and use them on ourselves. And oftentimes, blessings take people away from God. 
they start thinking, well, you know, I've got all this stuff. And, and God told them in the very, very beginning, and he says, you're going to go into the promised land, and when you get what you want, don't forget me. Because he knows our tendency is, okay, God, I got what I need. I don't need to pray anymore. I don't need to follow you. I've got, you know, God, I've got, I've got the house. I've got the good job. I've got the good car. I've got food on the table, and, and it looks like it's going to last forever, and everything's all set. God, I don't really need you. And God eventually will say, well, let me take these blessings away and show you where they come from. And you'll end up losing everything. But, you know, he looks at this and he says, all these things about the oils and the incense rising up, the prayers. He says, this is who my beloved is. And then she goes into this description of around Solomon's bed chambers were 60 soldiers. Now, he had quite an army guarding him. Now, uh, I don't know if this is overextended because it's poetry, but it wouldn't also wouldn't make, uh, be too hard to understand. He has a palace that he's living in. He would have had men right outside his door. He would have had men outside the windows. He would have had men at the gates. Sixty men guarding him is probably not a big deal, especially for somebody who has the wealth that Solomon has, or had. Uh, but, you know, I think about this. God protects us. He protects us as his bride. He protects us. Now, I don't know that every one of us have a guardian angel specifically assigned to us or not, but God's also not going to let anything happen to us. And if it takes uh, 60 angels to protect us at a certain time, he'll put 60 angels out there. If it takes one angel to protect us, he'll give us one angel, but he will make sure that we're protected. And this is one of the things I have great trust in God is because God is sovereign Nothing happens that he doesn't plan. And I love that. I love that God is in complete control. And if it takes a bunch of angels to protect us, he will. You know, and one angel's plenty enough. I mean, one angel killed 178,000 men in one night, so one angel's plenty enough to protect anybody that's going to try to get me. But they also are protecting us against the demonic forces. All right? Uh, there's a full host of raid against us. Again, the good news there is only a third of the angels fell, so there's two to one an good angels uh, to every one bad angel. So even on the demonic, <laughs> there's more than enough protection. And God is in control. And you know, the good news is, even in that, is that Satan has to ask for permission to do anything. That's what Job tells us. Yeah. You know, God, you know, I've been really thinking about it. I'd really like to go take this, but you know, you're protecting this person. The bad news for us is God says, go get them. <laughs> you know, all right, you can try. And that's the hard thing for us, is how many times does God say yes? And if we're not his child, Satan, I still think, has to ask for permission, but God is much freer to give permission to those that aren't his children. With his children, he says, okay, well, let's teach them a lesson. Let's see if they truly trust me. And that's what Job was all about. Job, do you truly trust me? If we take away your blessings, are you going to trust me? Job, if I do take away your health, are you going to trust me? Job, do you really believe that being good is why you're being prospered? It's not. It's because of me. And that's what Job ended up learning. And Job was accused by his friends of being bad because only bad people suffer. And, but the sad thing is Job tended to believe that. Because if you look at his answers, he goes, you know, I know that what you're saying is true. That was one of his favorite things to say in very poetic language. I know what you're saying is true, but I've not been a bad person. 
And so he had to learn that God's blessings come because God chooses to bless. Now, does God reward obedience? Yes, he awards obedience. Does he punish disobedience? Yes, he punishes disobedience. But it is not because of our obedience that we're there. It's just because he chooses to give. Because his grace gives us things we don't deserve, which is anything that we get. He gives us air. We don't deserve it. He gives us food. We don't deserve it. He gives us great blessings. We don't deserve it. Because the longer we walk with God, the more we realize how sinful we are. At least I have. You know, I work things out in my life and I'm going, oh, you know, okay, God, you know, for a moment there, I think, okay, God, I got victory. I'm all set. And he shows me something else to get out of my life. And then he shows me something else to get out of my life. And then he shows me something else to get out of my life. You know, because he starts showing us that in Jeremiah, we're told that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? We don't even know how bad we are until God starts shining the light on how bad we are. And, you know, we clean out what he shows us and then he turns on a brighter bulb in our, in our life to brighter light to show us a little deeper into our heart. And we're going to be changing our, our heart for the rest of our lives. And then when we get to heaven, he's going to glorify us and give us a whole brand new heart that has no sin in it. And then we'll really start understanding what it means to truly love him. And then we'll only be on a new adventure of learning to love him completely. Because even though we're perfect, we're going to be growing in that. We're going to be growing in the knowledge of who he is. Because he is infinite greater than anything we can understand and truly I believe that we're going to spend eternity getting to know him and that's where the whole relationship comes into if you're in a great marriage relationship you're getting to know each other better every year you know you should get to that point where you know what the other one's going to think generally and you know how they're going to behave generally but then they'll surprise you with something else that's new and you'll surprise them with something else that's been there all along but they've never noticed we're going to be that way with God. You know, let, me, let me show you another, another level. Let me show you another level. And we'll get to know him for eternity and have a enamoring with him of just learning more about him and learning more about all those different levels. And he protects us up and now. And I love this. And they all hold swords. Be an expert in war in verse 8. And every man has a sword on his side. We're protected by, by angelic forces that will protect us and only let things through that God allows. And his protection. You know, we think of this idea of protection as, a, as kind of a story, but there are so many stories of missionaries being protected by, by angels and being uh, seen. I love one about a guy who had to get to the next city over and he had to drive at night through a, through a jungle infested by rebels. And they kept telling him, you can't go. You, nobody ever makes it through. And he drove through with no problems. And later that week, he, one of the rebels came up to him and said, you know, we want to know where you found that army that was protecting you when you drove through. And he goes, what are you talking about? I was alone. He goes, oh, no, you had, you know, you had a whole army with you, fully decked out with what they recognized as weapons, you know. And then he goes, he saw angels. They saw angels and God protected now, will God protect us with visible angels? Most likely not. <laughs> if they're needed to be visible, he'll protect us with visible angels that we may not be aware that are there. But he, the thing we know is God has us protected. 
And I, I kind of like some of the cartoons where some of these angels are beat up and broken and stuff, you know. And I kind of wonder when we get to heaven, will we see a bruised angel and go, you know, where'd you get all those bruises? Well, I protected you from a lot of things. <laughs> you know, uh, I got this broken, broken wing over here when I, when I did this and, and this cut here because I, I took the, you know, the knife that was headed your way and this one here because of this, you know. Uh, who knows what, you know, <laughs> it's kind of tongue in cheek, but you know, who knows? These angels take a lot of abuse, you know, protecting us, and they're going to protect us from things we're not even aware of because there's a heavenly spiritual war going on around us at all times. And I think that if we saw what was going on around us, it would terrify us. The battles that are going on in the spiritual world would terrify us if we really understood because we are in the middle of a war. And if we really understood that, we would, be, we would be very different in the way we behaved. We would spend more time praying. We would spend more time you know, looking at arming ourselves and getting ready for the battles. But there's a war going on. And just if you've watched any war movies, the middle of a war is not the place to be standing. And yet we stand in the middle of a war zone every day, half the time oblivious that there's a war going on. And here the bride is being protected. She's now in a relationship with the king, so she's protected. You know, by the 60 men that are protecting him at night. And so we see this. Then it says, King Solomon, this is kind of an interesting thing, because now she's talking directly about the king, but we're going to try to look. And king Solomon made himself a chariot of wood of the Lebanon. He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, and covered it with purple. And in the midst, and midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. So we look at this, and... He made the sides with silver. And if you remember back when we were talking about the temple, silver represents redemption. God has redeemed us. And he loves us so much that he redeemed us. And he has brought this out for us and says, I have this redemption for you. you know, and redemption means bought back. We sinned and he bought us back. And silver is that whole idea of being redeemed, being, being bought with a price. And we figure, you know, how many times do we forget that we're bought? We were bought. Jesus bought us by his death on the cross. But not only by the death on the cross, the beating he took before the death of the cross was what we deserved as sinners. He took the flagellum that that put stripes on his back and took chunks of skin out and drew blood. He did that for us. He took the pounding and the beating of, around the face for us because we deserved that punishment. He died on the cross and became sin because we deserved to die. And then he rose again. The whole Christian message is wrapped up in those, that 24-hour period of time when he was punished for sin, died, and then three days later rose again. He did that for us. That is what Christianity is all about. In Christianity, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot do enough good to get to heaven. You know, and this is the thing. When we share the gospel with other people, every time I talk to somebody who's not a Christian, I go, they'll either tell me they don't believe in heaven, which means they have a very sad life. If this world is all there is, it's a sad life. Or they hope they're good enough to go to heaven. And that's a sad statement too because none of us are good. And 
in the Bible and in Christianity, we're told we cannot be good enough to go to heaven. Yeah. And I love when people will, I don't know if I've been good enough to go to heaven. I go, I can tell you real quickly, you're not. But neither am I. And I, I almost always will put in, and neither am I. Because they'll turn around and well, you, you think you're better. And I go, no. I have one thing you don't have. Jesus Christ in my life. Jesus died to pay the debt so that we could go to heaven. And every other religion, every religion, when you boil it right down, says you have to be good enough to go to heaven. That's why Christianity is not religion. It's not about works. It's not about good deeds. It's not about earning my way to heaven because I can't. And that's why it is so separate. And it's one of the lies that Satan has is just be good enough. Just be good enough. And we cannot be. And here it says, you are redeemed. You have been bought for a price. And then it says the bottom is made out of gold. And gold represents royalty or, or deity. Jesus stands on deity. He is deity. He is bringing us into relationship with him by marriage, which in theoretically makes us his children and puts us in his family, which isn't saying we're going to be deity, but it puts us in the family of God. And our long-term position is that we will rule over angels in the heavenly. We will be second in command in the, in, in the heavens because we are the bride of Christ. It'll be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then us. That's quite a powerful position. That's the position that Satan wanted before he fell. He was the chief angel in heaven. And he says, I want to be like God. I'm not happy with where I'm at. He was cast out. Adam and Eve created to be rulers over the angels and over the entire world gave it all up because of sin. So God has to redeem us to put us back in the position that, that we're supposed to have in the first place. And he had to redeem us to bring us in this. And then it says it is covered in purple and purple is the color of royalty. So she's being made into royalty just as we are royalty. Deity, royalty, redeemed individuals. And it says, and it's paved or, or patterned with love. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples for your love one for another. Love is the greatest expression that we are truly Christians. We start to love people. And love is a choice. Love is a love is something we choose to do. Love is not an emotional feeling. Okay, infatuation is an emotional feeling. Uh, I like the person is an emotional feeling, but true love is not emotional. All right. Now, in, in our English language, we use love for everything. Now, our, our word for our word love really doesn't mean a whole lot in English. You know, I I love my wife. I love hot dogs. I, I love my car. You know, and I hope it's not the same love for every one of those things. As a matter of fact, I don't even love hot dogs, but I use hot dogs because most people like hot dogs. But, uh, you know, we may really like certain types of food. We really might like our possessions, but I'm sure hoping that we're not loving it the same way we would our family or our our spouse. That's really bad if it is. Either we don't love our spouse deep enough or we love other things way too much. But, you know, 
love is so important. We talk about agape love, God's love, unconditional love is what it's called. And I like the term objective love better because objective love says I've chosen to love. And that's what God has done with us. He chooses to love humanity. And that is good. It is good that he chooses us because it says that God never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forever, which means if he's chosen to love humanity, he will never unlove humanity. He chooses to love us so much that he gave Jesus Christ to, to be our savior. That's great love. He's going to love people even that reject him and end up in hell. He still loves them. He's going to give them what they wanted. He's going to give them their desire of their heart, which was to be away from him. But he's going to love them. It'll probably break his heart to have to send them there. You know, a lot of people say, well, he's love. He's just going to accept anybody. No, he's love, but he's also perfect righteousness, holiness, and justice. If people choose to disobey him and choose to ignore Jesus Christ, then they'll end up in hell. And we can't do enough good to undo that because he has a standard of perfection and he's not going to let anything else stand in that way. And that's why he sent Jesus to die because he knew that we couldn't earn heaven. So Jesus died for us so that we could go to heaven. And if we reject that, then we've rejected him. And he says, okay, you rejected me. It's, you, you're eternally damned. And at that point, Nobody's going to change their mind because when they're facing hell, they're, everybody's going to want to change their mind at that point. And it's too late. The interesting thing for us is that we spend an entire lifetime making a decision that's going to affect eternity. And so many people think, well, you know, sometime later maybe I'll decide, you know, after I've had my fun. You know, number one, all the sin is never fun in the long run. But the, the really sad thing is, you never know how long you're going to live in the, uh, on, on one side of it. So make your decision early. But there's so much regret. Even if you do live to an older age and decide to follow God at an older age, you live with a lot of heart, heartbreak, a lot of baggage that has to be unlearned. That's why it's fun to watch people who get saved early, especially if they follow God and avoid a lot. You're still going to get baggage. <laughs> But you have a lot less baggage the more you walk with God. And this is why it's so important to make a decision early, as early as possible for, to follow God and get rid of all that extra baggage. Because trying to unlearn stuff is a pain in the neck. Trying to unlearn bad habits. And even if you, once you get rid of them, having the regrets for the lost time and the lost activities and the, the wrong things that happened and going, God, I've got so much, you know, I could have done so much more for you if I had just made this decision earlier. And, you know, even when we're following him, we have lots of baggage to come across when we don't do things his way. And we, and we look back and go, man, God, I could have just done so much more with my kids. And I've gone through that myself. And most people look at me and say, my kids are, were pretty good kids. And they are pretty good kids. But where would they have been if I hadn't walked away from God for two years, where would they have been if I hadn't done certain things in my life? You know, where would they be? And there's a lot of baggage even for me to look at and saying, God, you can redeem it though. And that's the good news. God can redeem all of that and grow them and help them, help them move forward. And this is what he's saying. I've just designed this thing that makes us royalty. He's redeemed us. It says, go forth, O daughters of Zion, 
And behold, King Solomon with the crown thereof, which his mother crowned him on the day of his espousal and the day of gladness in his heart. Do you realize that people watch Christians? Now, I've heard some Christians, well, nobody's watching me. I'm going, if you've ever told anybody that you're a Christian, they see you going to church, they see that you're different in any way, they're watching you. They want to know, is this a real thing that you're following? Is it something that I want? Is it something that I should, that I should want? Because you know, they see Christians and they know that we're different and they're going, well, maybe there's something there. And this is why our testimony with people is so important. Do we live a way that shows God's love? Do we show that God loves him in our, and, and that, he, that our obedience is for the right reasons? Or are they seeing hypocrites? When they see hypocrites, it's going, oh, well, they're just like everybody else. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And that makes it hard for the next Christian that comes along and says, you know, you, you really need to follow God because God loves you so much and he's done. Well, yeah, I know what you Christians are like. But, you know, they want to see true change. And when they see that true change, it draws them. They may not know why they're drawn. They may not even, all they know is that we're weird and we're strange and, and you know, you guys believe all kinds of different things from us. And, you know, yeah, I don't know what, you know, they'll be looking at I know you guys never have any fun. And my attitude is I have lots of fun and I can remember my fun the next day. I don't have to try to have other people tell me how much fun I had. Whether it's from drugs or alcohol or just being stupid, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't need to have other people tell me how much fun I had and how much of a fool I made of myself while I was having fun. I can have fun with God and enjoy life and know that there's not a lot of repercussions from having done so. And here she's saying, the daughters of Zion, that's Jerusalem, another word for Jerusalem, uh, are watching, they're observing. They're observing the, the celebration, the espousal. People watch us. And we hope to walk away that draws them to God. And that is so important that we live in a, a lifestyle that draws people to God. Because they're looking. And, you know, I think in many senses they're, when they're not hoping to see somebody that's perfect because they know they can't be perfect. But when they see somebody who can be forgiven and still enjoy God even when they do something wrong and, and repent and still follow him. Not being arrogant, but being able to say, God still loves and he'll forgive. And maybe have to apologize. One of the hardest things to do is to have to apologize to somebody who watches you fall, whether it's your kids or family or coworkers. You know, man, I'm so sorry. I should never have gotten that angry about this situation. It was wrong. I've had to do that with workers especially. You know, I, I really blew it. I should not have acted that way. That's not the way the world acts, and that, that even impresses them. You know, so we want to be able to draw close to God, grab hold of him and hold on to him for all the, way, all the uh, strength in our being and say, I want to follow you, I want to keep you, and then watch others as they see this and be able to invite them to join us in a relationship with God. Lord, we just thank you for this. Lord, we ask you to help us learn to love you so strongly and to follow you and to grab hold of you, to not let go. And we just thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.